0: This is the Strategy Inside Everything. I'm Adam Pierno. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. We have a very special episode for you today. You're going to really enjoy this. I have Nadia Tuma-Weldon on and we are going to be looking at luxury and she's the perfect person to do it because... Nadia currently serves as the Global Luxury Practice Lead at McCann World Group and the Global Director of McCann Truth Central. So she serves two roles, does two jobs. It sounds like a lot. Nadia, how are you today?
1: I'm great, Adam. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for making time to be here. I appreciate it. And um, I just made a joke about you having two jobs. How, tell me a little bit about the both of those and tell me how you're able to manage both.
1: Uh, yeah, so I do have two jobs, and um, I've been I've been with McCann World Group for uh, seven years this month, actually, awesome. and um, I've sort of always kept about two roles um, as I've been there, but uh, we'll start with my day job, which is um, the global director, one of the global directors of McCann World Group, Truth Central, quite a mouthful, but um, Truth Central is essentially World Group's um, global cultural intelligence unit. So we are a small but mighty but global team. And our mission is to create original research about culture. Um, So we have been in existence for 10 years now. And since then, we've been running these big, meaty, global studies um, from both a quantitative and a qualitative um, standpoint that studies the macro-cultural forces that shape how people behave and make decisions, and I think ultimately create relationships with with the brands that they buy and um, and in that time I mean we've just amassed millions of data points um, you know our studies tend to be in over 25 countries again both qualitatively a and, and qualitatively. awesome
0: scale so
1: big scale um, the data is proprietary so it's not publicly available it's not sold um, it's really about using um, and sort of harnessing the research to help our clients' businesses um, grow. So um, the reason, you know, the topics that we, we cover and we study are pretty broad. So we call them truth studies. There's a theme. So all of this comes from McCann's sort of original motto, which is truth well told. Um, and so the, tru- the the idea is that any insight, any campaign, any great creative idea, it all starts from a really compelling human truth. You know, what is this thing that we can understand that's happening in the world? So that's where we come in. We are constantly studying culture, studying human truths. And so our truth studies range from everything from the truth about wellness, sustainability, affluence, beauty, shopping, youth, globalization, you know, all of these big, um, big meaty topics. Because, you know, the, the view that we take is, uh, you know, let's say you work on like an auto brand, um, you know for better, for worse, and it's no fault of anyone working on it, you sort of talk about human beings as if they live in a world of automobiles. You
0: You can't help but contextualize everything to that vertical, to that space.
1: Totally. So they're like, you know, no one sort of, I mean, as much as we'd like to think, nobody is waking up saying you know, I wonder what Toyota's up to today. You know, not to call out Toyota, right? You wake up and you're like, where are my kids? What am I doing? You know, how's my health? How's my finances? What's happening in the news and the politics? You're
0: not thinking about brand pillars, that's for sure.
1: You're not thinking about where in the purchase funnel you are, you know, and which, uh, you know, millennial uh, vector is, you know, making your heart sick, (laughs) right? So I think, um, we try to really challenge a lot of those marketing tropes. I mean, even things like regions, which are like completely random. Like, how is Nina a region? That's are you East and North
0: Africa? are you empowered to break down those those questions or, and to uncover the the truth behind the truth? Or, or are you trying to? I've seen uh, agencies and research orgs that sort of have a, an editorial position, and all their research or all the research they do seems to reinforce it. Are you guys free to your findings or your findings and the truth is truth?
1: That's exactly right. yeah. so we we um, we work with basically every geography and every type of client, um, but we are not tied to any of them. So our work literally is the truth. It is what the data says. you know obviously we interpret it as sort of cultural anthropologists, I guess you could you could sort of call our group. Um, but yeah, I mean we take everything and challenge it. We take age demographics and challenge them we take, marketing regions and challenge them. And, you know, I'll get, I'll get to that in just, just a moment um, sort of how, how we do that. Um, but I think it's, it's, you know, I'm happy at the end of the day, if I can come in with the findings from our research, which is deeply human, like team human, like that is our team. That's where we play. And if I can come in and show the world in a way that can change a client's view of the world by like three degrees, that's success, because A lot of our big clients, like they see a ton of research and most of it is sort of traditional market research or sort of research from agencies that are very smart, but don't have that proprietary data. They're kind of doing the Forrester and the Mintel and the Google and like smart people in a room, which is incredibly important, but- It's a lit review. Sorry?
0: It's a lit review. It's It's not organically discovered truths.
1: Exactly, yeah. And I think we come to each topic saying, listen, Like I am not the only person studying age. I'm not the only person studying wellness by any stretch of the imagination. So what can I say about this topic that is true, but different, like, but is fresh and is interesting and makes people like kind of sit up and look at the world a little bit differently. So, so that's what I was brought in to, to do. And, um, I think the global nature of it is also another thing that sets us up. So we have, um, we have contacts in basically every country where McCann is, which is, I think most countries yep. um, and our, our those people help us um, contextualize the research run the qualitative that we do, which we tend to make really fun. Like we try to, you know, we, we like go into people's houses in a hundred countries and look at their bathroom cabinets for the truth about wellness. You know, we, we hold big dinner parties with wealthy people for the truth about affluence, you know, in their homes on their own turf. So we try to make the data sort of meet with these like really human stories and the people in all of these countries really help us, or we'll get like a weird data point. We're like, why is Brazil so odd in this for this question? And we'll call up that person, and they can help us make sense of it. So that global connectivity is really important. So, so I came into McCann, and I was I was starting to lead these studies. And um, I think about two years in, I was leading a big piece of research called "The Truth About Globalization." Was um, I co-authored it with um, with the the woman who founded Truth Central. And um, as a result of that, we sort of took that study on the road. Like we do these these launch events that are really immersive and interesting. And we kind of try to bring it to life and try to bring it to life, try to localize it. So if you have a launch in Paris, it's the French sort of interpretation of cultural interpretation of those global findings, right? So there's always going to be the universal human truths, the things that are just everywhere. Um, and bind humanity together. And then it's really about, well, how is this expressed in the Philippines? And how is this expressed in South Africa? And what does this look like in India? And you start to get, like, essentially, 30 versions of that one study, because you're able to localize it so effectively.
0: That's cool. So um,
1: so yeah, it was really, it's really cool. It's a great, interesting job. that keeps me interested, because you have to be thinking about the world all the time. You're going to have um, to share
0: some of those studies with me. I know they're not for sale, but I mean, you can, come on. I can, sh- I,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can share, I can share some summaries with you. For there's sure, no, but.
0: there's no video with this podcast, but listeners you should know that her face indicated there is no way on earth. I am getting access. <laughs> she gave me a look. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Claudia, come on. We're um, bros now. I thought for, for sure. For the right
1: price. Okay. Fair enough. Um, Yeah, so I, um, for for this one piece of research specifically, um, I started to head out, get on the road, and I was spending, I was actually spending quite a bit of time um, going to launch these studies in Asia, um, which I had never been to before, but was totally obsessed with, sort of, you know, in the ideal of my my Western mind, and um, as I started to do that, I started to work with the teams, and it was really good, and we were getting along, and the studies were looking really great, and and so there was this sort of conversation around. Well, would you want to come live here and maybe help? You know, I think a two-way street. One was to help bring the truth central sort of way of thinking to um, to the offices and the, the people in in our Asia uh, locations. But also, I think from a you know our headquarters is New York City, right? And 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 another global hub is, is London. And so it's very Western. You know, and mm-hmm. we talk about Asia, I mean, even just saying. Asia is, is like laughable, right? I mean, you, you, it's so diverse and so rich. Um, So even having my, like being a sponge essentially by living there and being able to speak, you know, with relative fluency on like, well, this is why Indonesia is different from Malaysia. And like, you could never call them a region, which is Southeast Asia. Right. So I obviously was not going to be able to do that job from New York city. So I went and I lived um, in Asia for two years and and did that role so that was my first time my first second job <laughs> um, within McCann
0: <laughs> you're committed to just overdoing it no matter what oh,
1: totally um, so that was an incredible experience it was super trans- transformative personally and professionally um, it was it was amazing basically running around the region um, just having like a, a, a crash course it sounds in cultural incredible. fluency. When, when asked what my next second job would be, I came up with, um, this idea of creating this global luxury mm-hmm. practice and the global luxury practice is essentially, um, this, this body, this, this network of experts that I created, um, that come from all over the world. So we have people from Tokyo all the way down to San Francisco, like <laughs> that, those entire time zones. Um, and what we do as a practice, our goal is to redefine and recast what the culture of luxury means for a modern era. And so we know that luxury has a lot of baggage as a term, but that we know that in the past 10 years, it has completely changed. But in the last 10 months, it's sort of accelerated beyond recognition, right? And and the idea that luxury is exclusionary and high-priced and white and Western and all these things is just um, something of the past. And we really want to understand what is a modern new view of luxury that is aware and inclusive and expansive and looks different and feels different for this new generation that's coming up. Um, and so that's what our mission is and that's what we, we sort of work towards.
0: And how does the, the truth central work overlap? And there must be a lot of overlap in the, in the research, but I'm assuming the truth central work is not specific to... Luxury per se, unless that's where the where the topic takes you, where the research takes you.
1: Yeah, there's there is overlap. I think um, you know we have affluence work that we do. Um, I've done quite a bit of qualitative research um, paradoxically on a shoestring to get luxury insights um, to you know through you know talking to different people or, or kind of hacking my way into figuring out how to how to get um, to speak with wealthy individuals, et cetera. Um, Or people who are just doing interesting things in the space. But I think the biggest thing is that we take, I take a truth central approach to luxury. So everything I sort of said about how we think about culture in the world, we sort of take that mindset and really explode it within luxury um, to get to new ways of looking at it that that can keep pace and almost, you know, be ahead of culture, ideally.
0: How did you get there? How did your brain start making that connection? versus be, because I, a lot of people are attracted to the artifacts of luxury but not the the drivers of it I guess or the mm. the insights behind it what what drove you what pulled you to that do you think
1: yeah that's that's a very interesting uh, question um well I think it it might go back a little bit to um, to my upbringing you know to some extent I have um, my parents are immigrants. They're from Lebanon, you know, and there's a very specific sort of culture that comes with that. Um, I grew up in America, but I sort of split my growing up time between America and France. So I've spent a lot of time there. And I think there's this very specific culture that comes with, with French culture. Um, and I think, um, there's also this part of me that has always been obsessed with understanding human behavior. Um, so this idea, um, of, when I was in university studying um, something called decision science, which was all about understanding how people make decisions and why people make decisions. And usually those decisions have nothing to do with rationality. They have everything to do with emotion. And yeah, so, we, have,
0: we have no idea why we do what we do.
1: Exactly. And even if we're told like, oh, well, you bought this thing because you were depressed or you felt empty or you, you had a great day, people are like, come on. No, I I bought it because there's,
0: I bought it because it's 12.9 fluid ounces. That's why, what a deal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I went from (laughs) awareness to consideration in the purchase funnel. So, you know, I think, um, you know, this whole, so, so basically this was something that I always thought about. And then when I, um, at at some point in my career, I worked in, um, in consulting, it was brand consulting and I wasn't, um, I wasn't very happy doing that job. I wasn't very fulfilled. Um, And in my free time, I just started writing in a blog, like this little funny blog that I had, that was just all about image and aspiration and luxury. And I would just sort of funnel all my creative energy into that piece of work, which is about 10 years ago. So it took me almost 10 years to get, to get the job. But um, so I think that just was started This sort of, was part of this lifelong um, curiosity about human behavior. And I think if you think about luxury, it almost is this sort of like really condensed set of um, this like condensed expression of aspiration, right? It's like aspiration just bundled into one concentrated um, space. And if you can almost understand the culture of luxury, you can understand all aspiration um, because it's sort of the finest, most sharp articulation of what aspiration looks like.
0: That's um I wanted to talk to you about, so I've had futurists on over the past few months. I've had people talk about luxury, but I noticed that you have done some work looking at where luxury might be headed. And in this weird weirdness that we're all in, um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on where, where you see luxury potentially going. And then we can kind of work backwards towards root causes that like what, what we're all experiencing that might be driving some of those things.
1: Yeah. There's so much um, to start to unpick. I know Um, this could be
0: an 18 hour. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think you also need to start even with the fundamental of how do you, how does one define luxury? You know, what does luxury mean to someone? Um, Where in the world do you live? Um, What are the you know, the experiences around you. I think the one thing that I go back to quite often, um, and we can just start somewhere and kind of go from there, there's so much that we could start to unpick when it it comes to this topic. But I had read somewhere once that 90% of all human behavior can be attributed to signaling. Hmm. And, you know, signaling is, of course, some kind of external um, signal to a stranger, someone, you know, or whatever that says something about who you are. Um, and when I started to think about luxury, even just right after the lockdown started to happen here in New York, you know, very quickly, you, you saw a pretty drastic elimination of the sort of classic influencer model. Right where here's my second home, here's my bling, here's my car, here's my whatever. Um, I think some influencers were slightly tone deaf, and, and some celebrities as well. I think that it's been well reported about how some celebrities were complaining about being stuck at home in their mansions, and yes. things like that. Right, um, and so they were very quickly vilified those those who tried who did that. But I think most of most people like this knew pretty quickly that it was going to be in poor taste to do any kind of privilege, showing things off as, um, particularly in New York, people were, were dying, you know, um, and then following that, there was just, there still is a lot of economic hardship. Mm-hmm. But what I did notice was on a more sort of quotidian level, like people just sort of normal lay people, that signaling still existed. It was still going on. And, you know, so you would see things like people posting... <laughs> Photos, of, thank goodness they don't do this anymore. Posting photos of like a Zoom happy hour, you know, on Instagram to show, listen, I'm still in demand. I'm still a person that is social and connected and popular.
0: Yeah, that um, didn't make, I remember that phase of the first month of people doing things like that. And I mean, now it's like Zoom happy hour, please don't invite me to that. But then but in that first month, it was like, oh, okay, yes, my social life, my social status still remains even despite all that's happening.
1: Right. And, and what other reason to post a photo of a screen on another screen than to show, to signal that you're still, you know, thriving? So, you know, I think, unfor- well, fortunately or unfortunately, um, part of human behavior is to, to signal and to show certain things. Now, what I, And I think that's a universal human truth. That doesn't change. It's been around. I was, I was just sort of writing um, a little piece about how um, I went to the Met Museum and there was this hall that was all about um, ancient Rome. And there was this whole section about like luxury in ancient Rome. And you read it and it read as if it could have been written last year, you know, just about the way people wanted to adorn themselves, or the way that they thought about importing goods, or the way that, um, you know, they there was exploitation of people. You know, all of these certain things that I think are just, they're just universal. They've always been, they always will be. Now, what I find most interesting is the nuance. So how does it change, right? So if signaling, if showing certain things about right. status, if
0: those things are constant. They're then constant. What's
1: they're, they're, they're a, a drumbeat. Um, how is that How is that activated? How do we understand that better? Um, so, you know, my group that studies luxury, we're a global group, and I think when you start to dig into the different cultural contexts, it starts to get really interesting and really powerful, um, because I think ultimately, when you think about human behavior, you are a product of your context, um, even in New York. So I, I sort of posited this theory that, you know, it's going to be in really bad taste to walk around with a brand new expensive luxury handbag, um, or to drive around in a brand new luxury car. And I think for the most part, that's true. But then on said Met museum visit, um, my husband and I were Uh, in the, on the Upper East Side. And we went out to lunch afterwards and people walking around were like totally, um, you know, adorned in all the logos and all these things, because it's a safe space there for people to be doing that. Right. So I think, um, I think it really depends on, on your context. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, um, again, as I mentioned, our, our team's quite global. So we have a few experts, um, in luxury who live in China and in China, there is a tremendous amount of trust in the government. The government has, you know, essentially made the COVID pandemic kind of like a bad memory that happened over the summer and people have moved on. It is the bright spot in luxury because of that. You know, people feel a sense of optimism. They feel a sense of trust. There's huge lines at the Louis Vuitton store in Shanghai. You know, that's, that's back to that.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, so so you're going to have those sorts of different differing um, pieces around that. Now, what I would say has been really heartening, I think, um, and it's not, not something that is new, but I think has been accelerated by the pandemic. Has been um, this real need for luxury brands to um, to be responsible, to be inclusive, to be aware, to be um, expansive. Um, you know, there's this great quote I heard at a conference in January, which seems like
0: wow, 14 yeah. years ago.
1: Yeah. It was from the CEO of Tiffany's and this was right before the sale to LVMH was announced before recently it was unannounced. <laughs> um, but he said, you know, people are, are now coming to luxury with questions. Um, yes, it's beautiful on the outside, but is it beautiful on the inside? And I think This whole projection around, you know, millennials and Gen Z by 2030 and 2040 you are going to be the biggest proportion of luxury consumers in the world. They have those expectations and they want to see themselves reflected in campaigns. They want to see brands acting in ways that are meaningful um, and not sort of old, um, exclusionary, precious, rarefied.
0: But this is interesting because when you asked earlier, what is luxury? Um, as you're describing luxury brands being more inclusive and more expansive and covering more ground, what I start to hear is that if they're including more people then they're less precious so how do you how do you reconcile both of those things if it if they are i mean certainly you're not going to see those brands come to the McDonald's territory, but how do you how oh <laughs> I triggered something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think that's a really interesting provocation. So we do this, an initiative I started about six years ago called the Tastemakers Council. And the Tastemakers Council is uh, a gathering of a variety of innovators and thought leaders in the luxury space. And we bring them together for a big experiential dinner where we talk about co-creating the future of luxury. And we talk about the forces that we think are defining luxury and affluence in the future. And the last of these that we held was in November, of course, right before everything changed. Um, But one of the big themes that came out of that conversation was like, can we ever define luxury? Is there a way to ever put like a definitive, this is what luxury is and this is what it means. And I think to our earlier point about these enduring truths but understanding how they shift and and shape over time, um, the theme that came out was that luxury is this powerful combination of love and skill and love and skill; those two together is what makes what makes luxury. So whether it's uh, a love for um, for craft and a skill for people, or it's a love for solving a problem and a skill for um, for creating a product, mm-hmm. um, or it's a love for joy and it's you know so you start to kind of understand these ways of, of mixing and matching. And I think then you can understand okay, well if I'm a brand. Uh, and I'm a luxury brand, and I think about um, what love really means in my context, you know, in the context of what I do. Um, And I have this skill. So when you think about, for instance, uh, direct-to-consumer brands, and many of these brands sort of tout themselves as modern luxury brands. A lot of them, like they might have the love, like really high, but maybe the skill is a bit lower, like the product isn't as wonderful, or the skill is really high, like incredible technical skill, but the love and the care and that sort of personalization right. and that not there, right? It's
0: technically perfect, but there's no soul.
1: Totally. And just like music, we know that if you play a technically perfect p- sonata on the piano, but there's no soul to it, it's going to fall flat. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can play absolutely beautifully. But if you're making mistakes all over the place, like it's not it's not <laughs> won't be able to listen to it. Or it's jazz. So think, or it's, <laughs> just quote, unquote. Quote, unquote, jazz. Um, So I think within that context, we've been using that a lot as a North Star and how we think about things. And, you know, when you mentioned McDonald's, I think that really sort of lit something up in me because I've been thinking a lot about new luxury and what that means in the context of including new voices and including um, people of different shapes and sizes and colors and experiences, which... Um, I think if you're not thinking about that as a luxury brand, you're not going to survive because this is your customer. Um, and if it's not your customer, it's a customer that cares because they have friends of, you know, of that. So there's a brand that I've been sort of obsessing over lately. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're called Telfar. Mm-mm. So Telfar is, um, has also been dubbed sort of on the street as the Bushwick Birkin. <laughs> when, so they make... Um, they oh, yeah. T-
0: I know it now. Keep going.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I thought you would. You seem pretty tapped in. Um, (laughs) Definitely
0: not, but I know that one.
1: (laughs) What I love about this brand is that they they are considered a luxury brand, even though their tagline is, it's not for you, it's for everyone. And what they have done is they've turned every single trope of the luxury model on its head. And, you know, one of the things that they do, which... It was funny, I was I was actually talking to a reporter about, about this brand recently, and I said, you know, it reminds me a little bit of like what John Galliano was doing in the 90s. You know, before there was all this money and this huge machine, and it was just raw creativity, you know, and he just used his friends to help put on shows. And
0: Yeah, and this is what, what I'm going to do, and it's going to be what I want it to be.
1: And it is love, and it is skill, like yeah. in spades, and I think sometimes both of those things can get diluted when you throw too much money or sort of influence and power or conglomerate at it. And so what's been really interesting about Telfar is that, you know, he grew up in Queens um, and he grew up kind of going to White Castle and going to, you know...
0: I'm looking at the White Castle
1: uniform lab
0: now. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. What is and happening?
1: You know what I love about it? He was like, oh, you want to, you want a piece of that collaboration? Well, you got to get a job at White Castle, you know, and because... Um, th- this was a, f- and first of all, this brand has been around for like 10 years. So it's not that they're, they're brand new. I think they're coming to prominence now because the cultural moment, they're sort of rising to the cultural moment. Yeah. But, you know, the idea that they just needed some funding and they're like, well, we like White Castle, so maybe they can do it. And what I find so amazing is that, you know, they had one of their runway shows and then the vice president of White Castle said, well, why don't you have the after party at our restaurant in Times Square? And they were like, that's awesome. And we won't even have a um, like a guest list. Anyone can come. And it was the biggest party, the most wanted party in all of Fashion Week. And you had literally the vice president turning on and off the lights. So it would be like a strobe. And people were just <laughs> filling up soda. I mean, but how delightful and joyful. Like That to me is what luxury should be. I, I don't think luxury should be this like stiff, un, unflexible thing that... Um, that doesn't feel like joy and beauty. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I, well, there's room for both. Yeah. There's room yeah, for both. There, there are certainly some of the the enduring brands that are rigid in their expression. Some of those will thrive and and evolve further into that direction. But but I, that example of Telfar and some others, um, there's room for that love and that inclusivity. I wonder how much, it's kind of like, who is the designer that did the DHL? Um, oh, that mall. Yeah, like you can get away with that one time and still be luxury. I don't think you can go back to that well a second time and that, before you're like, yeah, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's kind of like the gap, you know?
1: Yeah, and why am I paying $7,000 for an Ikea bag? Right, <laughs> right. You know, no one's it's, paying $7,000 for anything right now.
0: And and that's the question about inclusivity there's a way to signal that and there's a way to do it in, intentionally with uh, real real meaning behind it. And I wonder how far how far do you think people, how far do you think brands can push it before it goes, how, where's the line between coveted and too accessible?
1: Oh, that is the eternal question, Adam. I think there's this really interesting conversation around that that's going on right now around the luxury resale market. Um, so I don't know if you saw in the past week, Gucci partnered officially with the Real, Real, which is a luxury consignment company that's doing some great things.
0: They're doing great things, but they're also bridging the gap. And some of those brands, if they become too easy to get through something like that, it I think it diminishes their brand.
1: Yeah, I mean, yes and no. So here's my perspective on that. You know, so you have the Gucci on the one end and, you know, Alessandro um, Michel is like amazing, right? He's transformed that brand. He's done a ton um, in sustainability. He's super smart. He surrounds himself with like Gen Z and millennials anyway. So he's hearing from, you know, the the customers that most, um, well, not only most purchase him, but are also the future, the company. And then on the other hand, you have Chanel, Who is very skeptical of the resale model. And there's a couple of lawsuits out, I think, between Chanel and the Real Real around counterfeits and maybe not valuing things. And I think what's interesting is I tend to think that a lot of that is driven more by the brands than by the people. So if you think about a Chanel, like the amount of money that they pour into their marketing, into their runway shows, like they held a legitimately major. Um, fashion show in Paris Fashion Week just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so they're putting all this money in. And honestly, Chanel, to me, is still one of the most amazing luxury brands, just in the way that they operate, in the way that they create content, in the way they bring you into their universe, in the way that they uphold Mademoiselle Coco Chanel is sort of, you know, the specter that guides everything that they do. But you have to understand, they they think if we're pouring all this money and we have these incredibly high prices, Um, the real real, for instance, is is going to denigrate our brand. Um, Again, I think that's the company really being strict about control over their image. But I think if we've learned one thing about the shift in luxury is that traditional luxury, old luxury, is that the luxury brand sets the thing that everyone aspires to. They say, this is what you need to aspire to. You need to come to us. What we're seeing now is that it's the people who are setting and defining what luxury means for them. And it's the brands that now have to come down and speak to the people and not come down in like a derogatory way, but come, come meet them. And so Mm -hmm. you see really smart brands like Gucci doing that. Um, I think Chanel does a really good job in some of their other ways, like their beauty products are more accessible and, and, and feel luxurious and they're kind of coming to, uh, to a customer and making her feel like an expert and that she has taste and things like that. But I think that, um, The idea of people buying $8,000 jackets right now is probably not a reality. And the idea of buying something that is already in the production system, it is not made new, we don't need more stuff. There's enough stuff that is produced to let everyone survive for the next 50 years if we never made another thing. (laughs) You know, um, I think there's a real pride that people feel when they get something that feels responsible there's a story behind it. I think mm-hmm. people like to say like, yeah, oh, you like this? It was, it was secondhand, you know, and, it, and I, and I got this great deal on it. And isn't it beautiful? And isn't it, you know, and you have a story around it. I wonder what the, the woman who wore it before what her life was like, you know, and you start to kind of have these things be passed down, they almost become like heirlooms, you know? So I think it's a complicated thing, but um, there's a huge uh, desire for luxury, traditional luxury brands to hold on to that creative control and thus say, no, our prices need to be really, really high. But I think the reality of the world now is that you're not going you you will have your high value customers who are sort of recession proof, who will who will buy these things regardless. But I think more and more people are gonna be thinking, what is sustainable, what is inclusive, what is a way that I can get this sort of this beautiful thing, but mix it into the way that I like to live my life um, and create it something that's that's totally me and to- totally different.
0: That's very interesting. You, do you think there will be more brands that come and find that path into um, diversifying their distribution so that their their wares can be found through a variety of channels and not just the ones they control and, and making that secondhand or um, alternate connection possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're starting to see it. You know, I think a lot of um, a lot of brands again. There's a control issue, but I think if they have control over it, um, you know, this isn't necessarily like a traditional luxury brand. But if you think about Levi's, which has always been a pretty strong proponent of um, of the environment and a you know, especially denim being one of the most destructive um, materials to make um, in the world, um, they recently launched a sister site that's like secondhand vintage. You know, and you can go on that site and you can just buy up, you know, older vintage Levi's. And I think there's a real cachet to that. There's almost more of a cachet to say you've got something vintage or secondhand or you did a little searching for something than to just say, you know what? I clicked on a thing and I bought it because I had some money. (laughs) But, you know, but at the same time, I mean, to that point, I think there's so much more to this conversation than the product, because to me, there's a difference between oh, I'm going to go on the on the Cartier website and I'm going to buy a pair of earrings, whatever. For- yeah, that
0: doesn't do that's
1: half, do That's
0: that. 10% of the experience of going into the Cartier store right. and having that experience of asking somebody to pull the thing out from the case or reach up and grab it from the shelf and experiencing that moment where they unveil it for you and
1: They give you the champagne and you like, you have their business card and they, you know, and you have the story of the, you know, there's a reason the Cartier is a mansion on Fifth Avenue because it has all this history and, you know, Grace Kelly was there and all these things. But with the real, real, I mean, now, you know, there's an interesting conversation to be had about the role of retail stores. And I think the role of a retail store is actually going to be exactly to double down on that experience because you can sort of get anything online now. And so even what The Real Real has done, and I swear I'm not like a spokesperson for them. I just, I think what they're doing is very interesting. Um, In their stores, they would, first of all, they look beautiful. So you walk by and you don't think consignment. You walk by and think, ooh, that looks interesting. But they also were really good about curating events. And so you would have you know, leaders in sustainability do these like panel discussions to talk about the impact your clothing has in the world. Mm. Um, Or they'd have interesting designers come in and curate a collection for you and talk about why, you know, we should be not buying a bunch of new clothes all the time and all these things. So I think it's going to be more about the process than the product in a lot of ways, whether that's, oh, I'm going to go to a really fine, handsome luxury store and I'm going to interact with a salesperson in a really meaningful way. Or I'm going to buy this product, but there's this really interesting sustainability or inclusion story around it that's going to be something I can tell my friends about.
0: Hmm. So it'll it'll be more about finding a meaning or injecting a meaning into the way you got it, potentially, or adding context to it versus just that click and own mentality that Amazon has trained us all into.
1: Yeah. And Amazon's trying to get... Like they've tried and tried and tried to get into the luxury space and they keep trying and it just fails to stick and I think it's a great opportunity to say you just you just can't buy your way into luxury. You just have to have you have to have some love and skill that supports it.
0: Well what do you think they could do? I was just about to say that this has been a good conversation but now I'm intrigued. Let's talk about Amazon for two seconds. What do you think they could do better? Because you're right. I think they've had five failed attempts and they're trying again now and this every time it's like this time it's going to be the time. Sure. Not buying it. But what do you what do you think is the missing ingredient for them? Why why do they keep swinging and missing?
1: I mean, I don't I don't want to say like this. Hey, this is what Amazon needs to do for it to work. But <laughs> I think there's there's probably a couple of really key reasons why it doesn't work. I think the first thing is that the minute you start to stock or have a relationship with Amazon, you are effectively cut off from your customer. So you, you basically don't have the ability to look at the data, um, you know, to have that sort of one-on-one conversation with, with your customer. And I think that's really important. And there's why I think there's a very well-trodden set of lists of brands that have refused to sell on Amazon for yeah. that reason. Um, and I think, quite frankly, there's um, a negative brand rub. Um, if you're a a luxury brand um and you have an amazon in front of you it just simply denigrates the brand unfortunately it's the
0: opposite of the real real
1: yeah it's not it's not additive right
0: so exactly it's it's because you can just add to cart or buy now it's removes any of that context or meaning that people are seeking in those things that's right yeah interesting well this is great nadia this was um a fascinating conversation for me to, to pick your brain on that topic. Thank you so much for making time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Where can people find you uh, online?
1: Uh, Where can you find me? I'm not unfortunately a very active um, (laughs) social media human.
0: (laughs) Good for you. But this has been, uh, this has been wonderful. Thanks again. Thanks so much. strategy inside everything is produced by me, Adam Pierno. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps. If someone shared this with you and you're just not sure where you could find it, you can go to specific.substack.com and sign up there to get episodes before everybody else. For more information about me, Adam Pierno, you can go to adampierno.com. There's information about my books, my speaking and my strategy work. Have an idea for a guest? Send it my way. Just go to adampierno.com and you'll find a form there that'll help you connect. Thanks for listening.